You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. So, over the next month during Lent, we are going to be studying the meaning of Christ's sufferings and the crucifixion. Lent is traditionally the time of year when Christians ponder such things, of course. And today I want to address the question, why was Jesus crucified? Notice I'm not asking today, what is the meaning of his crucifixion? We'll get into that more over the next month or so during Lent. And we'll get into it a little bit today simply because you can't avoid it when you talk about questions, why was Jesus crucified? But I want to focus more on... um, of the practicalities of what led up to his crucifixion and um, the reasons are quite interesting and quite complex actually and of course we get this information from the four gospels matthew mark luke and john which um, do i think contain uh, significant historical uh, accounts of jesus of nazareth's life yes there's ahistorical aspects to it as well, but there's, I think there's real history in there too. Jesus' journey to the cross begins with him making himself the enemy of the Jerusalem religious authorities. And they hated him for a few reasons. According to the gospel accounts, they were threatened by his popularity. They felt that their own power and influence was in jeopardy with him around. And to be clear, what made him popular with the commoners was that he cared for the poor and the powerless and the peasantry, which made up the majority of the people. He cared for them, ministered to them in ways that the religious authorities never did. He showed them the so-called nothings and nobodies, that they are seen and and loved of God. He made uh, the afflicted and the infirm feel loved of God in ways that the religious leaders, the religious authorities never did. And this made him enormously popular. So they hated him for that. But they also hated him because he was highly critical of them. He called the religious authorities snakes and hypocrites and even whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside, but full of everything corrupt and decay on the interior. And he used that strong language against them because they not only took advantage of the poor, but they used their religion and their religious laws to oppress and harm people, to make people feel subhuman and unloved by God. Jesus called them out for that. And they didn't like that, not one bit. And even more so, he rebelled against their religious laws. Practically every chance he got, he was defying and rebelling against religious law. He did so by ministering to and and touching those who were considered ritually unclean, like the sick and the infirmed. He, He broke the Sabbath, we're told. He cavorted with and befriended unclean people like Samaritans and Gentiles and tax collectors and sex workers, and he even had table fellowship with them, ate and drank with them which was a big no-no back then, that was seen as deeply impious. He completely disagreed with the religious leaders 
depiction of God as a, as a God of religious law. Instead, he taught that God was a God of love, especially for the so-called least of these, those on the margins, those deemed unholy, impure, other than the, the so-called nothings and nobodies. He taught that God was a God of love and stood in solidarity with them. All of this ran afoul of the religious authorities and made them, made him their target. But it was his claims of being divine that really sealed his fate with them. In all four Gospels, we're told Jesus is arrested, charged, and convicted by the high priest and his council for blasphemy, which is a high crime, blasphemy, for asserting or inferring even that he was divine. That was a big no-no in ancient Israel because of their concepts of holiness and purity. God was so holy, so pure that he could not be enfleshed in a corrupt and mortal human frame. The divine and the human, they believed, were entirely separate. But Jesus said otherwise, and he caught hell for it. But there was still yet another reason why the religious authorities wanted him dead. In John chapter 11, we're told the high priest and his council have a meeting to discuss how they can finally solve their Jesus problem, get rid of him. And they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and destroy us. It's interesting. Why would Rome... They were an occupied people under Roman rule. Why would the Romans care about a religious or theological controversy in Judea that made the populace follow this Jesus of Nazareth and turn against the religious authorities? Why would, why would the Romans care about that? Well, the reason why Rome would care is because they had a zero-tolerance policy for social unrest in their territories. The Jewish religious leaders had been given the responsibility from Rome to help maintain Roman control, Roman power, and peace in Judea. They were like Roman vassals. Rome was very savvy, very smart. In order to rule over its vast empire, they allowed the various cultures and people groups in their far-flung territories to maintain a lot of their religious and cultural traditions to make them feel less subjugated. They absolutely were subjugated, but this made them feel like they had, you know, themselves still. They had some ownership over themselves still. And so Rome had allowed the Jerusalem religious authorities to maintain their power, their control, and be essentially an extension of Rome's power and, and helping keeping the peace and keeping the people where they needed to be. And Jesus was putting all that at risk. So the Jerusalem religious leaders were in cahoots with Rome. And if they failed to keep the peace in the territory, if a social uprising occurred, religious or otherwise, they were dead meat. They knew that, that Rome would come in, not just simply remove the current authorities, but wipe them out, get rid of all the instigators, and it's just appoint new leadership but it would essentially destroy the temple, destroy Judaism, <laughs> destroy everything that the religious leaders cared about. 
And so apart from Jesus's religious infractions, his blasphemy, his harsh criticism of the religious authorities and his popularity with the people, he was a threat to, he was an existential threat in the religious leader's eyes to Israel's, Judea's existence. And because of all this, the high priest and his council decided he had to go. But they didn't have the power to kill him themselves because if they did that, that would probably cause a revolt. He was so popular with the people. They knew this, which would be, you know, Contrary, antithetical to the, what they wanted to accomplish. They wanted to stop a revolt so they could keep control. So they knew they had to hand him over to Pilate. And Pilate, Pontius Pilate, was, of course, the Roman governor of the region. And so after trying Jesus for blasphemy and convicting him of it and sentencing him to death, they, they transferred him the next morning to Pontius Pilate's palace, where he would stand, charges, stand for charges of sedition, crimes against the state, for inciting social unrest. You see that? And during his trial and interrogation before Pilate, Pilate keeps asking Jesus the same question. He keeps asking him this question, are you a king? Are you a king? Why was Pilate so concerned about that? It's because the crowd, the people who had gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover holiday from all over the country just a few days prior had lined the Jerusalem gate welcoming Jesus as he rode into the city with shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Pilate knew that that had happened. He knew that Jesus was being heralded as this king, perhaps like, like the Maccabees two centuries prior who had overthrown the Seleucids. He knew the people wanted Jesus to become like a warrior, messiah, messianic figure like the Mac Maccabee family and the Maccabee, Maccabean revolt, rise up and throw out the Romans like they did to the Seleucids. Pilate understood his history. He knew, he knew what the people wanted. Jesus didn't want that. But he kept asking Jesus, are you a king? Are you a king? Jesus responds to him, classic Jesus fashion, cryptic and confusing, which didn't serve him very well, perhaps, in this circumstance. But he responded, you say that I am a king, and for this I was born, but my kingdom is not of this world. You can imagine Pilate was like, what? What are you talking about? Well, Jesus was talking about how his kingdom is not a literal physical kingdom of power and might on earth. He doesn't come to usurp a throne in Jerusalem and be made into this Emperor, he didn't come to set up an imperial ruler like rulership like Rome. He wasn't interested in worldly power and authority. His, his kingdom was a spiritual kingdom, a metaphorical kingdom of love and justice and compassion and mercy and care and concern for the, for the poor and the outcasts. This was his kingdom. This was his rulership. Pilate didn't get that. He didn't understand any of this. Of course, neither did Jesus' own disciples. All Pilate knew was that the Jewish religious leaders has, has handed him over to face charges of instigating social unrest and potential sedition, being heralded a king just a few days prior. And so Pilate convicted Jesus, you could say, put it that way, sentenced him to death and sentenced him to crucifixion, which if you know your history, that was a very unique 
Roman punishment for charges for crimes against the state, sedition. And that's why Jesus was crucified. And, and that is why the sign hung above Jesus's head on the cross, the king of the Jews. So everybody walking by could see, oh, this guy made himself king, sedition. That's why he's hung up there. So this is why Jesus was crucified. It was because first he made himself an enemy of the religious leaders and then also an enemy of the state. And to be more specific, it was because he made himself an enemy of the religious leaders first because he stood up for the poor and the powerless. Because he taught that we didn't need priests and temples and holy books to be one with God. It was because he resisted oppressive and unjust powers like the religious leaders. It was because of this that they wanted him dead and handed him over to Pilate as an instigator of social unrest, which he kind of was. He, he basically was an instigator of social unrest. He was challenging. He, he was challenging the duly appointed religious leaders appointed by Rome. And that's why he was crucified. Yes, on the surface, the reasons are primarily social and political, but underneath, the reasons have great spiritual and moral import, I believe. So I don't want I don't, I don't want it to sound today like there's no deeper reason for why Jesus was crucified other than just social political reasons, because there, there are. But those reasons are tied into the political and social dynamics of the day, such that one cannot understand those other reasons without understanding the social and political ones first. Please notice what I'm not saying today. Don't just notice what I am saying. Notice what I'm not saying as well. I am not saying that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. I think when most Christians are asked, why did Jesus? why was Jesus crucified? The response is, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. It's not what I believe. That answer, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, is a theological answer that ignores the social and political dynamic quite often, which is really at the heart of the matter. One might respond now and ask, well, can it be both theological and political and social? Well, yes, but not in the way that most think, in my opinion. This, this idea that Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins is an idea that came after Jesus, after he was gone, that was read back onto his story by those in the early church, like the Apostle Paul, who developed a, a robust theology and atonement theory around Jesus's death. And Paul wasn't the only one who did this, but he was certainly one of the first. Over the centuries, Christians have developed numerous atonement theories about the crucifixion. What's an atonement theory, you might be wondering? Well, the word atonement simply means to make at one. The idea of, a, of, a, of an atonement uh, ritual is to make oneself or a community at one with God again through ritual sacrifice. The idea of atonement in Christianity, you're all familiar with this, is, is that Jesus's death somehow made us at one with God. We were estranged because of the fall or original sin in the Garden of Eden. You've heard this story. Jesus had to be incarnated and sent to earth and suffer and die. And his blood had to be shed in order to appease God's wrath. 
and supernaturally atone for our moral wrongdoings. Familiar with that story? One of the most, this is probably the most popular atonement theory. Um, it's called satisfaction theory. It's the technical word for it. Again, it's this idea that God's wrath against us, God's wrath against our sin needed to be satisfied. His, his justice and wrath had to be satisfied. And the only thing that could satisfy it once and for all, the blood of bulls and goats wasn't cutting it forever. The only thing that could satisfy it once and for all was the death of a human being, but not just any human being. It had to be a, had to be a perfect person, his own son, no less. That's what did it. That's satisfaction theory in a nutshell. And all this so that we can go to heaven when we die and not hell. A subcategory of satisfaction theory is called substitution theory or penal substitutionary theory. Fun terms, right? Uh, which says that Jesus took our place at the cross. He was a substitute for us. He took upon himself the just punishment of our sins. We deserve this, not him. But he was a substitute for us and was essentially God's punching bag so that we could be made righteous or so that God could, his, his wrath could be satisfied. Jesus was a substitute of punishment. God poured out his wrath at the cross on him so that oh, God could be satisfied and he could then love us and accept us and give us eternal life and not send us all to hell. What good news, right? It's good news, right? There are more atonement theories than these. We don't have time to get into them all. Why did people come up with all this? Why was all this read back onto Jesus? Jesus didn't talk about substitution theory or satisfaction theory. He didn't come talking about this stuff. Where, where, where did all this come from? Why did they do this? Well, the answer is complex. And it has to do, I think, with human psychology and our our need for catharsis and relief from existential dread and our, our fear of death. And so we need to scapegoat. That's an important concept. We need to scapegoat something or someone to, to alleviate these problems, these antagonisms that we suffer with as human beings. Again, this existential dread, this fear of death, fear of nature. We needed to scapegoat something, someone to take it away, hopefully. Purge ourselves. And by killing the scapegoat, we unconsciously think, I don't think we consciously think, but we unconsciously think we're killing those parts of ourselves that we fear most. But more specifically, within the early church, within, this was a Jewish context. The first Christians were all Jews. Within that first century Jewish slash Christian context, people like the Apostle Paul developed atonement theories about Jesus' death because atonement was at the very heart of the way they understood God and religion in the first place. Like many ancient spiritual traditions from the Near East, okay, from, from the ancient Near East, Judaism developed among many other many other cults and spiritual traditions around them at that time. Ancient Judaism, like all of them, was steeped in this idea that one must appease the deity or deities with blood sacrifices. The Jews were not the only ones doing this. Not, you find it all over the ancient, you know, all the Semitic tribes were doing. You can go to South America at the same time and find the Mayans and the Aztecs doing it. It's just a human idea. 
had to kill something to, you had to scapegoat something to take away the community's problems. So all these various cults all made animal sacrifices to their gods. These were often fertility cults. The thinking being that if we just make the proper sacrifice to the right God, the rains will come, the crops will grow, the livestock will reproduce, and natural disasters like earthquakes and famines and droughts will be kept at bay. But if you don't make the right sacrifice to the right God, well, you know what happens. And we find this thinking all around the ancient world, but particularly within ancient Israel and even the Israel of Jesus's day, where they were still going into the temple and making animal sacrifices to atone for their sins, to maintain the covenant, and hopefully keep calamity at bay and keep the nation blessed, et cetera, et cetera. This is also called blood magic. This is called blood magic. Blood magic was a big part of many ancient spiritual traditions, including ancient Judaism. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the early church, was comprised of first century Jews, translated Jesus' death into the religious context of blood magic, ritual sacrifice, and atonement theology. This is why the scriptures describe Jesus as the sacrificial lamb of God. Have you heard that term before? Why would Jesus be described that way? He was crucified at Passover, we're told. That's interesting. What happened at Passover? Well, a, a perfect spotless lamb was taken to the temple and slaughtered, and its blood was sprinkled on the altar to atone for the nation's sins, among other things happened. It was a feast, a supper, a supper, Right? Jesus was described as this sacrificial, spotless lamb that was slaughtered on our behalf to atone for our sins and to ensure the ongoing protection of the Lord for his people. Now, I personally, as a modern person, don't believe in this stuff anymore. I don't believe in blood magic anymore. I don't believe in ritual sacrifice then or now. Course. Nobody believes in it now. But you, you go into most evangelical churches today in very sophisticated areas and affluent communities where most people have college degrees, and you will hear this taught that Jesus had to die on the cross for our sins to appease God's wrath so that you can go to heaven when you die. This is blood magic. It's just, just ancient blood magic from the Near East, you know. Ritual sacrifices, atonement theology. It's astonishing to me that. That's still popular today, um, even among the so-called sophisticated modern West. We're not as sophisticated and modern as we assume, perhaps. But I personally can't believe in all that anymore, primarily because of what I know about the Bible and its historical and cultural context, as I shared with you, which I had to go to seminary to pay a lot of money to hear. I never heard this stuff in church. You're getting it for free. I had to pay for it. I believe it's really important for me to share all this with you so that you can make up your own mind about what you want to believe and what you don't. I don't want to tell you what to believe, but you need to know the facts from how I see it, of course. But there should be a sign always behind me. This is Aaron's point of view. I may be wrong. <laughs> you, don't have to you don't have to think like me. This is what I think, and this is what other people think. You make up your own mind. 
And I don't want to be too hard on the ancients here this morning. I've been pretty hard on them. Okay. But there's a lot of evidence in the Bible, namely in the Old Testament, among the prophets, that they believe God doesn't really care about ritual sacrifice. You find that in there, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, that God doesn't care about ritual sacrifices, but wants righteousness and justice. For example, Samuel says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and, and to listen than the fat of rams. Isaiah says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the, the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls and goats. Jesus quotes Hosea, who says, this is another Old Testament prophet, Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Throughout the text, we find this idea that God is at best ambivalent about sacrifices and much prefers that people obey his commands to love, to practice love and justice and mercy and compassion. So I don't want to be too hard on the ancients here this morning because the, there was much pushback in the text, in the ancient world, in the Hebrew tradition about sacrifice and about really true religion. The Bible is a complex text, and it's not univocal. You don't just find one voice in there, one, one ideology, I guess you would say, or one theology. It is a text in conversation with itself. That's how we should see it, I think. In conversation, It's a text in conversation with itself about God, who God is, and what it means to be his people. So it's complex. Let's be fair to the ancients. And you know, the really toxic nature of traditional atonement theology, in my opinion, and I'm wrapping it up. I know I've been talking a long time this morning. The really toxic nature of traditional atonement theology, in my opinion, isn't just that it's based on ancient superstition. The real problem I have with it is that it makes us ignore the real reasons why Jesus was killed and the meaning of that event on both a spiritual and social political level, as I've discussed today. The other problem I have with traditional atonement theology is that it makes God into a violent and cruel, bloodthirsty being. A God who demands such things, animal or human sacrifices, is not worthy of being worshipped or believed in, in my opinion. This is, that is a bad God. How's the Buddha? That's a bad God. And here's the thing about believing in bad gods, violent deities. They make us violent. You believe in a violent and cruel God, as much of evangelicalism does, it's no surprise that it kind of makes them sort of violent and cruel. Yeah? We are a reflection of the God we believe in, and vice versa, for that matter. So I say all this to say, Jesus did not die on the cross for our sins, in my opinion. But he died on the cross because of human sin. This is an important distinction, meaning because of the unjust and cruel ways that we treat each other, he was killed because he challenged and defied the unjust powers of his day for the way that they were harming the poor and the powerless. So I think it's good and right to say that Jesus died because of human sin, which to me makes his death still a holy and redemptive act, not in a supernatural way for me anymore. 
Anyone who lays down their life for the cause of love and justice, the way that Jesus did, is, is committing a, a holy and redemptive and sacred act. Think of someone like Martin Luther King Jr., who was assassinated for standing up for righteousness and justice. That, that's a Christ-like death. That, that's a redemptive, sacred act. Holy. So I still see I still see Jesus' death as sacred and holy and redemptive, but I just don't hold the supernatural interpretation of it anymore. I believe his suffering and death at the hands of the powers that be, meaning both the religious and political powers of his day, functions as an invitation and a calling to all of us who want to be his disciple to stand up and resist such powers today and thereby put ourselves in harm's way, even if in some small way, like he did. He put, it, he put himself in harm's way in a big way. By standing up for black lives, by standing up for the LGBTQ community today, by standing up for the poor, for the refugees, by standing up for them, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble today with the powers that be, with the religious authorities and the political authorities. It probably won't get you killed or seriously harmed, but you will incur their wrath. This was just as true in Jesus's day as it is in ours. So there's my talk on why Jesus was crucified. It covered a, a lot of ground, a lot of history, and what was that, I don't know, 20, what, 20, 25 minutes? Um, questions, concerns, complaints, yeah, Desiree. Um, it's, I, I agree, I just would add that I find it interesting, like in Mark, for instance, it's after Jesus clears the temple of the people selling and doing all that, that then the the powers that be um, are like, we need to destroy him. So it's kind of like, for me, that's the exigence or the triggering moment. So if if I kind of push that forward in my head, it's, it's the powers that we don't really mind if we're helping the poor or the disenfranchised until it affects their paychecks or in their money and their power. And I think there's a lot to be said here that I, for me, when I read it, it's yes, Jesus was doing and disrupting and all of this, but it was his impact on their finances that got him killed. Yes. And so that's all I wanted to add. That's awesome. No, you're absolutely right about Mark. That's how Mark um, tells the story. And Mark was um, the first, the first of the synoptic gospels in Matthew and Luke use Mark as a primary source. Yes, absolutely right. Other thoughts, questions today? What does this bring up for you now? I looked at you, Jason, you raised your hand. I have a question. The original sin substitutionary atonement thing, I know that the Jews had their like ritual sacrifice of sheep and stuff, but attributing that to Jesus as humanity, savior, whatever, is that first, is it Paul that started that? I've wrestled with this question too, because it's certainly Augustine, you know, three centuries prior. And that idea of original sin, I believe, and I years ago I did a lot of research on this. Um, I believe it was Augustine or Justin Martyr, one of those early church. It definitely comes from the patristics, patristic era. Okay, so it's been second, third, and fourth century. That's where it really takes root. 
that's where it develops. So like yeah. early, but you years, could argue you could, you could read certain passages in Romans and, you know, in Paul's writings that seems to articulate that idea that Jesus came to reverse the curse that Adam and Eve began or that something, you know what I mean? So you could find that a little bit in there, but there's debate as to what Paul meant really. And it maybe wasn't central to the theology until the 300s or something. I think so. And I, you know, I'm curious what other, you all have done a lot of reading. Some of you've been to seminary. I don't know. Did somebody have a better idea about this than I do? Better answer. Yeah. Abe, would you mind? Here, I can be the bridge. There you go. I, this is just my opinion in terms of, uh, my interpretation of history. Yep. Um, I, in my opinion, it's kind of like uh, not formalized by Paul, but strongly suggested. You know, I think he was like moving in that direction as an Adam, Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. You know, that, that it's kind of like it, it's heavily implied that there was a death of some kind to humanity in Adam, and Jesus came to sort of uh, reverse that. But I think it becomes much more formalized. It becomes formalized and more dogmatic uh, with Constantine and you know, sort of the early church fathers. So it's like it's kind of like, you know, I don't know if it was like systematized in in the way that it was by the fourth century by Paul, but he was definitely going in that direction. Yeah. You know, let's say if Paul had you know continued writing and wrote a lot more and had a chance to sort of formalize all that i think he probably would have landed more or less in the same place so it's kind of like they didn't i don't think constantine and, and the early church they, they didn't i don't think they invented those concepts out of whole cloth like it didn't exist before like i think it was probably a pretty common interpretation yeah. you know among sort of christian intellectuals for probably a very long time and they just wrote it all down and made it the official church doctrine and started making sure all the laity kind of followed, hey, this is what we really believe now. This is, you know, and, and yeah. teaching it, you know, specifically. Yeah, I think, and uh, and you, you're describing Constantine, who it was at that time that the Nicene Creed was created. And that's where things were really formalized. It's around those those councils, those bishops that got together to formalize the faith uh, into, into creedal Christianity that solidified these ideas of original sin and, you know, atonement theories and, and you know the, the high Christology and all that. Yeah, yeah, that's good. It's messy. It's complex. And I, you know, there's I'm sure there's books like this thick written about where all this stuff came from. But this is I think that's basically the gist of it. Yeah, yeah, good. Other thoughts today? Yeah. Uh, okay, Randy and then Jason. Uh, hi. Good morning. Um, I wanted to go just tack real quick onto what Desiree said. It's interesting, you know, people, we talk about the uh, the Jewish and the Christian part of the story, you know, and the kind of Rome above, but it's interesting what you mentioned about the flipping of the tables and the making of the money. And sometimes, you know, when you study like history, you know, one of the interesting things about Rome was they didn't really care about your religion so much, you know, they, they let everybody in their domain have whichever one they wanted that was, you know, convenient for them and kept the peace. But what Rome really, one of the things that brought besides roads and bridges and technology was it was, you know, Rome was about the business. You know, they, they set like the days of the week you could have trade, you know, they organized and, and you know, trade, business, commerce, you know. So as long as you, you could have whatever religion you wanted, as long as you didn't mess with the money, 
you know, you're okay. And I think it's interesting. And the reason I mentioned that is not so much to bag on Rome, but specifically, but to think about how that might manifest in our world today. Like, who does that sound like? Everything serves capital. Right. <laughs> God, the only true God is capital. Capitalism. I mean, it was even pre-capitalism. That was kind of Rome. I mean, yeah. It's just fascinating to think. Yeah, right. In, in the almighty of... dollar, the almighty drachma, whatever the Roman money was. Roman yeah. <laughs> how we, yeah. So it's just interesting to think in the, you know, so much of how we do things in the U.S. It, today. Yeah. No, I mean, I think you're right. I think Rome was cool with whatever Greek god, Roman god you wanted to pay homage to, whatever, you know, Yahweh was just among Zeus and whoever else. But I mean, then you get, but then there was the imperial cult, which kind of rose above all this. Like, it's cool. You can worship all the other gods. But you got to pay homage to the, to the emperor god, most of all. If you don't, you're in trouble. So I mean, it's interesting how Rome wielded religion, as you say, completely as a power dynamic to serve the empire, absolutely, in many ways. And it's interesting. Um, yeah, other thought. Randy, did you have something? Or Jason, well, you want to continue? Well, no, I mean, I, I, the other thing, you know, I like to, you know, another completely different thought just to share. I yeah, don't sure. Too much time, you know. It's like, you good? Sometimes when you think, if you look, think that all religions have some element of truth in them, you know, sometimes I, when I read the Old Testament, I think of like the early Roman God, of you know, like Janus, who was like the two-faced God. You know, and you didn't know which one you were going to get. And so, you know, and I think how that relates to the story is with like sacrifice in the Old Testament, you know, when, and there's this mystery about God telling, was it Abraham or Jacob to sacrifice his son? You it know, was, it was uh, Abe, Abraham, right? right? Yeah. And then, it, and then at the very last minute, shows up and is like, no, no, you don't have to do that. I think, which is, you know, but it's, I think that's a great element back with Jose and the other, which are beautiful beautiful lines actually from the they from are, the yeah. text to talk about like god's thoughts about sacrifice you know like let's you know it's pretty clear right there he's like you don't have to do this you don't have to do this <laughs> yeah i'm gonna stop you right before you do it but yeah know, that's, somehow that's really... things keep things keep coming back <laughs> yeah no it's a good point and that story of abraham almost you know sacrificing isaac i think is understood um as being a, a repudiation against human sacrifices that were taking place, child sacrifices that were taking place in the Molech cults uh, that were surrounding Israel at that time. The idea was Yahweh is not a God that's for human sacrifice. But then of course the Christian Jews are all about, no, he actually was. It was just, he wanted to sacrifice his own. It's not Jesus becomes Isaac who actually was killed, but then raised from the dead. It's a mess. I mean, it's just, let's not pretend it's not just confusing as hell, but it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, Randy. Um, quick question, I guess. Um, like Jesus said, uh, no man takes my life. I lay it down and pick it up again. Um, why would he have to lay it down and why would he have to pick it up again if that wasn't a sacrifice, I guess? Yeah. What, which gospels that come out? Is that John? I'm trying to remember which one. Um, I don't know. Anyway. Um, sorry, did somebody know? Okay. Um, yeah, that, that idea of... Uh, nobody takes my life, I lay it down, is this idea, I think. I mean, it, if Jesus of Nazareth actually said that, the Gospels absolutely were written, you know, in a way that um, put words in Jesus's mouth that was part of what's called the Jesus tradition, okay? Um, keep that in mind when you when you read texts like that, like, Jesus said dot, dot, dot. Well, the Jesus tradition, G the Jesus tradition says that. Okay, does that make sense? Um, but I love that idea that Jesus said, no man takes my life. I lay it down. 
you know, it's this idea of, I know what I'm doing. I know that what I'm doing is putting me in harm's way. I don't care. You know, and Jesus told, called us, the Jesus tradition calls us, you know, if you wish to become my disciple, pick up your cross and follow me. What does that mean? I think he's talking about love like me. Even if it costs you your life, and it very well might, not us, but you know what I mean? Jesus was saying that. Love like me, even if it puts you in harm's way, if it runs afoul of the powers that be, lay your life down for the cause of love and justice. Pick up your cross. Be my disciple. No one takes your life. You choose this path. That's that's how I read that. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then there's that end. It was like, but I can take it up again. Pick up my life again. And I think that's kind of like resurrection theology. Maybe. Yeah. Say that again. It is John. Yeah. Yeah. So what? Say that, Max. The latest gospel. Yes, and the most metaphysical one, Max is saying, and and the most Christological, and there's this high divinity of Christ is in John that's not in the other three, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, yes, yes, it's a, it's a great passage. Other thoughts today? Okay, Jason, yeah. Um, Randy, who has the, yeah, that Jason, sorry. Thank you. Just one other thing that um, I think we use sacrifice or I should say scapegoating today to avoid accountability. Like I was talking with my dad a while back and he was saying that he didn't like uh, the idea of global warming because uh, moment of honesty from my dad, because he felt like it would, it was saying it was his fault. I didn't like that feeling. And I feel like these kinds of scapegoating are to basically make it possible to avoid that feeling of, I mean, it's really accountability, but that, that feeling of guilt of this is all, these things are happening because of me and I'm the one to blame here. So I'm going to blame that thing instead. Um, and I, from that point of view, I think it uh, changes how I think about Jesus a little bit like let's put him under the knife to make me feel better I mean that's kind of what this substitutionary atonement really means but the sort of like feeling behind it I think is just uh, an interesting perspective no it absolutely is it's the scapegoat uh, mechanism dynamic is fascinating from just a human psychological issue because it exists today in all different ways and you think about how evangelical America scapegoats the gay community. Every time there's a hurricane, it's because we have not dealt with the gays as a country. We're, we're too lax on gay marriage. God has sent this hurricane. I mean, that's just scapegoating. Yeah, but I mean, it, and it really comes from their own guilt of like, I'm not doing something right, or this is all, I think, yeah. Yeah, and the, the Nazis scapegoated the Jews, right? Blaming all the societal ills of the Weimar Republic, the economy. It's so all the Jews, right? We get rid of the Jews, then we'll have peace. This is just human thought, you know? And we do it in our, you know, just in our communities and private lives in different little ways. It's very human. Immigrants today. Yeah, absolutely, right. Yeah, there's lots of different examples of scapegoating. Because when it's, as you put it, Jason, it's, it's hard to face the truth 
painful truths about us and our lives and who we are and what we're doing and the reality of it all. That's, that can be hard. So we unconsciously look for a scapegoat. And by killing them or getting rid of them, we can have peace. Doesn't work, right? Never did. It's good stuff. All right, it's 1130. Thanks for participating in a great discussion. Let us conclude our time together, as we always do, <clears throat> by saying this joint benediction. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Thanks for being here, everybody. Go in peace. Thank you.